Welcome to the Lightning Round. Welcome. Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Dave Kirshner Lightning Round podcast, also known as uh, Week Eight in the Forty Sixth Quadrennial Hunger Games. I am your host, Dave Kirshner. Um, so we got. Let's just get into it. I mean, they passed the stimulus bill, and one point eight or nine trillion dollars, and. Barely $250 million of it is going to actual people. Do you understand that? that? That this is what the left has been trying to do. This is why they were so frustrated when Trump won in 2016. They've been pushing and trying to gain speed and go further and further to the left at every step that they could that they can get, that they can take. It's just, it is unbelievable the things that they are going to throw money at that, I mean, it's not even about our children paying for it anymore. It's going to be our great-grandchildren are still going to be paying for this crap. But, and, and I mean, that's kind of all I wanted to cover with current events because it when you see stuff like this, where you see multiple waves of... Um, deficit spending, like we're seeing, it it gives some credence to some of the things that I'm seeing and reading out there, particularly in the financial sector, where you know we had the the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009 uh, with the housing crisis bubble. I got an interesting story for you on that. So in 2001, we had 9/11. Um, I had been laid off a few months before uh, 9-11 and had difficulty getting a job because of 9-11. Everything was shut down. People were scared. People were panicked. They didn't know what to do. Eventually, I landed a job with a bank uh, down in Charlotte. And the project that they had me working on was in their broker's division or broker channel. So these are people that they basically they're bundlers. Um, they go out, they try and sell, um, you know, a, a bill of goods basically for people that are home buyers. And, and what they basically had me do was I was shadowing the underwriters because we were going to do uh, a revamp of their uh, broker channel software. And as I was watching the underwriters do their job and they're going through and they're doing the financial qualification for potential buyers and they're going through their paperwork and they're looking at W-2s and they're looking at the paperwork that the broker sent. And I'll give you an example of what I saw while I was there. There were, it was a couple, they had lived, they lived in a trailer in, uh, in rural I think they were in rural North Carolina, maybe. I forget where they were, but it's immaterial. They, they lived in a trailer. 
they worked second and third shift jobs. Um, they were making anywhere between 15 and 22.50 an hour. So they're, you know, that's what they were making. That's where their that's where their careers had taken them. And I mean, as far as I know, they were perfectly content and lovely people. And somehow a broker had gotten them to think it was a good idea to move from their trailer with two hourly rate shift work jobs and that they could afford a $425,000 home in uh, what amounted to a gated community. And, the, and, and they did this by um, expressing to them or, or not, not, what's the right word? Impressing upon them that the loan package, they would make um, small interest-only payments for five years. And then there would be a balloon payment where the balance was due. But they, they, they convinced these homeowner, home buyers, potential home buyers, don't worry about that because in four and a half years, four and three quarters years, you just come in and you'll refi the loan and then you'll start making actual payments along with your interest payment once you refi the house and you go into a traditional uh, 15 or 30 year mortgage. Now, mind you, they, they've come from... A trailer, a trailer park, I think, maybe. And they're being told, you know, they're going to go from their $50,000 trailer that they can afford to a $425,000 home with, you know, four or five bedrooms, two and a half, three bathrooms, you know, multiple stories, walkout basement, you know, half acre of land, whatever it was that they were trying to buy. So in 2001, I saw what was going on in the housing industry, but I was so young and inexperienced and I had a, a new, my first child, my first child was on the way. I had a lot of other things on my mind and I did not realize what I was looking at then, but it took seven years for that type of lending practice to matriculate into a crash of the economy. And what I'm seeing nowadays, uh, and I'm hearing more vocally, is that because of all of this additional deficit spending that has occurred due to COVID-19 and all the you know the restrictions and and basically state governors crashing their own economies by being overly stringent. Um, without any real science to back it up at the time they just said oh our next door neighbor state you know they shut it down and you know two weeks to flatten the curve and you know hey I got a question for you so uh, this Friday is going to be one year from when uh, our governor shut down our state so I'm curious um, what outfit are you going to wear at the end of the two week flatten the curve uh, party we're going to have, you know? Unbelievable. It's been a whole friggin' year of this nonsense. But anyway, 
what I'm seeing and hearing out there is um, it, it started out as quiet whispers. Hey, you know, we can't we can't really do all this kind of spending stuff, guys. I, th I think I think we might need to pull some of this back. You know, we need to be better prepared. And um, you might want to get your house in order because the economy is probably going to crash. Started out as a whisper, just a whisper. Now somebody is up in the church steeple banging on that bell because you can't have three rounds of stimulus checks adding multiple trillions of dollars to our debt and think that there's not going to be some sort of repercussion and whirlwind of pain coming back to bite us financially and and crashing our economy in, in other ways because and I don't even know if you could call that a black swan event at that point because if you have been paying attention, you see what's coming. You know what's coming. So what I would tell you to do to prepare for the next recession or depression or whatever it is, you know, I, I just don't see how it, how it cannot happen um, in some way, shape, or form anyway. But... You know, get your get your stuff in order. You know, if you've been putting off doing certain things, whether that's increasing your uh, capacity for stored consumables, let's call them that, whether that's food or fuel or water or or you're or you're lacking some gear, um, I don't know how much longer I'd be willing to wait before I got on the horse and picked up the, the, the things that I needed, uh, to withstand that. Um, but that's, you know, you do what you want to do, but, and I don't want to be a, a, a chicken little, but you, you can't have multiple trillions of dollars of deficit spending and not have some sort of, of repercussion. So I hope I'm wrong. But these things tend to repeat themselves because nobody seems to own a freaking history book. <sighs> you know, it just just boggles the mind. So, all right, moving on. We are going to talk about <laughs> how successful and some interesting things that happened to me while I tried to make maple syrup um, for the first time. So... <laughs> Here's what happened. All right. So if you're gonna if you're gonna have an eye toward preparedness, you understand the adage: um, one is none, two is one, three is better, and it goes on and on, something like that. So <laughs> I have a fire pit, and I had plenty of of firewood. And I tapped my my maple tree, which I later come to find out I should have I, I should have tapped a different tree. But the one I did tap was a, a silver maple. That's in my backyard, and my kids nicknamed it Steve. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Multiplicity, where um, the Michael Keaton character goes and makes a copy of himself at the lab, and the first copy comes out, and it's and it's the manly version of of the character, and and he's all like. 
you know, gung-ho. He drives a truck, and he chews tobacco, and he drinks Budweiser, and he's a foreman on a construction site, and and all these things. And then the next one comes out. He's like, I still don't have enough time to myself. And uh, so he goes and gets another copy made. And the second version comes out, and it's more of the nurturing, effeminate version of himself. The, the doting father, the loving husband, who, um, you know, is just there to kind of make everybody's lives a little bit better and a little bit easier by taking some of the uh, domestic burden off of off of the the original and the first copy, and then they decide the two copies decide that they can't manage everything that needs to be managed, so they go make a copy of number two. So they've taken to naming themselves number one, number two, number three, number four, and so two and three go and they make a copy of two, and the explanation in the movie because it. The number four comes out, and he's more of the the inner child of of number one, the kid that the the one that likes to play, that wants to have fun, and and so the scene opens up, and number four is wearing um, like rubber duck boots. He's standing on two two by fours, and he's driving a nail through the toe of his rubber duck boots, and. Then when the nails are driven, he stands back up and he assumes this uh, Olympic ski jumper position like he's just gone off the ramp. <laughs> and number one looks at number three and he's like, what the hell is going on? And he's like, well, you know when you make a copy of a copy, it's not really as good as, say, the original. <laughs> so I don't know what made me think of that. But anyway, um <laughs> that is a funny movie. You should go watch that. It's called Dupl- Multiplicity. Anyway, um, so I have a fire pit. I have lots of firewood. And my plan was to take my two-gallon bucket of harvested maple sap, pour it into uh, a turkey pot, a turkey frying pot. I don't ever fry turkey. It's my low country boil pot. But, uh, you know, it's one of those big, tall... Uh, buckets really and um but i don't have a grate that fits over the fire and what i did have was my my camping tripod um you know the coleman tripod with the little grate on a train on a chain and you can raise and lower the height over the fire and and you know the first thing i did i carried that pot out there i hadn't lit the fire yet and i'm standing there staring at it and I'm like, mentally, I'm thinking, ah, crap, this is not going to work. i got to go to plan B. And behind me, I hear the back door of the house open, and it's my wife. And she's just, you know, she's the little angel on your shoulder, you know. It's like, you know that's not going to fit, right? <laughs> I'm like, yep, I know, I just figured that out. So then I thought, well, okay, plan B. And plan B was, I was going to use one of those aluminum... Um, roasting pans that you use in Thanksgiving for the turkey. So now I've used two different types of turkey cooking methods. (laughs) So I put the pan in on top of the grate and I wedge it in there among the chain because it's got three pieces of chain that come up to a central um, hook about uh, 18 inches above the grate. And I think, well, this is perfect. It's good. It's low. 
Um, everything I read and, and watched online said that I, you know, if you can increase your surface area, you can speed the process up, you know, instead of putting it all in like a deep turkey frying pot, right? So I put this pan on there and then I go over the tree and I take the bucket off the tree and I start pouring the sap in, but all of a sudden the, the balance is off now that I'm adding this liquid to it. So the grate is starting to swing and starting to lean. And I'm like, oh, crap. So I'm trying to put the bucket down. And with the other hand, I'm trying to grab the pan that's now sliding out of this grate. So I can salvage or save the maple sap. <laughs> and what I wound up doing when I tried to yank the thing out, out, of the, out from in between the chains, is it wound up sloshing the sap down, down directly onto the fire. So now I've got this huge plume of white smoke <laughs> where the sap has landed in the fire. I get the pan out. I salvage maybe a cup of the half gallon that I probably had poured in there. Uh, maybe not a whole gallon, maybe not a half gallon, but it was a fair amount. And um, the tripod falls over. The fire is is smoking, and it's just, and I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. This is like Keystone Cops meets Dumb and Dumber is how this is going so far. So I'm like, well, all right, time for plan C. What have I got? And I go into the kitchen, and I get a, I get a, you know, a stainless steel pot. And my wife is looking at me like, don't you think of putting that over an open fire? And I'm like, honey, I cook in this pot on an open flame on our gas stove. What's the difference? You know, and she's like, you are not. That is a match set. You are not going to ruin your pot by making maple syrup. I'm like, ah, oh, crap. And then it, it, it hits me. I said, you know what, I think I got another pot. So I went and dug around into my camping supplies and, and my preparedness gear, and I found my cast iron pot. And I thought, well, okay, great. It'll fit on the grate. It'll fit under the chains. It will fit center on this on this grate, and I won't have the, the equilibrium problems of, of this tray that I was trying to use. So it took like 35 minutes after I lit the fire the first time to screw it all up, almost put the fire out, get the fire restoked, and then get a new pot on the grate and finally get the maple sap into the pot. So so basically I started my clock at 1.30 in the afternoon. I had a limited amount of maple sap. Um, I cooked it all down. And <laughs> it took four hours, um, and I would say about three hours and 30 minutes, so three and a half hours, I cooked it down in the uh, cast iron pot. While that was going on over the open flame of the fire, I got out the uh, my, my dual burner... Uh, camp stove and a, and a spare uh, LP propane tank and I got that all hooked up and I you know I got the okay from the wife that I could use one of my one of my stainless steel pots as the finishing pot 
So I got all of the, I got almost all the liquid uh, burned off, all the, the, the moisture, the water, because, and it, this was an interesting thing because I had never really used a, uh, a candy thermometer before because uh, really desserts and sweets aren't my, my thing. Um, but my wife actually explained it to me in, in, in small terms so that I could understand it. <laughs> Have you got one of those wives that just, honey, here's how this works. Okay, first you're going to do this, and then, you know. So <laughs> she, she explains to me the candy thermometer that uh, the reason a candy thermometer works as it does is because water will never get to 219 degrees. Okay, it'll evaporate before it gets to that temperature. So the boiling point of water is 100 degrees, but it'll never get much hotter than that. So a candy thermometer works by measuring how hot the sugar is in the pot. So to get a thermometer to 219 degrees, you basically you have cooked off all of the water, all of the moisture that is in that sap, and all you're left with is the sugar. So you're going to cook that sugar up to 219 degrees. So I used my, my camp stove. I only lit one burner because by the time I cooked down all of the sap that I had, which was about, well, I started with two gallons, but I probably spilled, call it a quarter to a third of a gallon. So I had a little over one and a half to one and three quarters gallons of, of sap that was available to me. So once I cooked all that down in the cast iron, I poured it into my finishing pot and put that on top of the more easily controlled burner um, for the propane stove. And then I dropped the candy thermometer in that. And that probably took about uh, maybe 20 minutes or so. Um, so then I took that pot in. So, But before... So, okay, let me pause. When I transferred the maple sap, which was becoming syrup from the cast iron pot to the finishing pot, I filtered it and I got out any impurities, any soot or ash or anything that had gone, fallen into the pot, um, any sugar sand, any of that stuff that all got trapped in the filter. So I was left with good, clean, almost maple syrup in my finishing pot. Then I cooked that down to 200 or I cooked that until I hit 219, 220 degrees. While that was getting up to temperature, I went in and I washed out the filter. And then when I hit that 219, 220 mark, I took the pot inside. I put the filter inside of a funnel and then stuck that in the uh, the mouth of a, of a syrup jar that I bought. It came as part of a kit that I bought when I tried to do this like two years ago. And I'd, so I poured the, the now maple syrup through the filter into the funnel into the bottle. And what I was left with after call it a, a gallon and three quarters of maple sap turned out to be about a third of a pint of maple syrup. <laughs> and it took four hours. So, uh, you know, we enjoyed the process. We got to sit outside by the fire and talk, and we drank coffee, and and uh, you know, we just we had a generally good time. Um, you definitely come out of that stinky, thinking, you know, because you're sitting around an open fire, 
And, you know, if I had to do it over again, I would pick a less windy day. Um, the wind, it, it wasn't that the wind was blustery, but it was constant. It was, and it was coming from multiple directions. So it was kind of blowing the smoke from the campfire all over the place. Um, which is why now I understand uh, why people have, you know, dedicated three-sided sugar shacks. You know, they got a little tin roof on it. Um, that stuff, you want to try and control that flame as best you can. And when you're fighting the wind, it makes it even more difficult. Um, but all in all, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was an afternoon. Um, I did do some investigating and it was, it was, I was already cooking the sap by the time I, I don't know why I didn't do this before, but the tree in my front yard is a sugar maple. The tree in my backyard is a silver maple. And the really only difference is the amount of sugar in the sap. So maybe I would have gotten more maple syrup if I'd have tapped the sugar tree. But I think if we're going to do this next year, we're going to we're going to up our game a little bit. I'm not going to use a freaking camping tripod. I'm going to go find an actual campfire cook grate. You know, I might redneck it by putting it up on some cinder blocks. But I'm probably going to put one or two buckets on my uh, sugar tree in the front yard. And I think the tree in the backyard will handle two buckets as well. Um, so that would give me eight gallons. And I have two turkey fryer pots. So I would work, you know, four gallons a piece into the two turkey fryers, and then I would have two finishing pots, maybe trying to keep it all separate, or you can mix it too if you want. But um, which takes me to my next, my next uh, topic, which is, um, as I mentioned, I was working with um, a cast iron pot, and so I... I literally had a cast iron pot over an open flame for eh, three and a half hours, solid, uh, just burning off moisture. And so now that that pot was used like that, um, and I had so much water in it, uh, I really needed to give it a good cleaning. Uh, so I, I um, so this morning. Uh, I re-seasoned it. I did it when the wife wasn't home because I wasn't quite sure what this was going to entail. Because when you buy them, they're already pre-seasoned by Loge. That's who my that's who my manufacturer is for my cast iron. And um, when I when I went digging for this pot, I found uh, a Loge um, cast iron skillet with um, I, don't know, I call them ridges, but it was kind of a, a graded. Um, frying pan so stuff doesn't fit like directly on the bottom and has these cast iron ridges in it well when I found that that thing was it had spots of rust and stuff on it I thought well that's no good so um, I decided I was going to re-season them both um, when I was done with the the maple syrup project so this morning what I did was and I and I checked the the Loge website and basically what they said was or I guess you could call it Lodge Lodge, L-O-D-G-E, Loge, Lodge. Um, so what I did was, to because I knew I was going to reseason them, I mean, I went, normally if you were just cooking it, like I cook a cobbler or something in my cast iron pot, um, 
you can just scrape it down with a plastic scraper and and if you have one of these ridged like frying pans there's there are special scrapers that you can buy from Lodge Loge um, that allows you to scrape in between all the ridges uh, it's got little cutouts in the plastic scraper it's very handy um, so what I did was I, I put I cleaned one at a time but what I did was I used um, some steel I don't know if you'd call it steel wool it's a steel scrubby um, not like a, a grill scrubber or anything but it's it's soft and it's kind of mesh feeling so I cleaned all of the rust out of the frying pan and I cleaned any of the cooked on sap and crap and basically I just kind of scraped out all of the pre-existing seasoning that I had and um, then you take a little drop you, then you dry it all off get all of the water off of the pans and then you put in a couple drops of olive oil and you and I use olive oil I prefer olive oil but you know you can use anything vegetable oil or canola oil melted shortening I mean you could use Crisco if you wanted to um, actually Lodge makes a Loge, God, I wish I knew how to pronounce that, but, uh, they make their own little seasoning spray. You can use that. But what I did is I put a couple drops of olive oil in and I just worked it into the interior of each pot or the pot in the pan. Then I set my oven to 475 degrees. Their website says 450 to 500. So I split the difference and I went 475. And then I put a, uh, a rimmed baking sheet uh, on the middle rack. And then I put the two pans in upside down in the oven. And you let that cook for an hour. And when it's done, pull them out. You set them on your stovetop or whatever. Let them cool down. And now your cast iron pans have been reseasoned. Um, so there you go. And the last thing that I wanted to do this week is I wanted to revisit the topic that I covered in uh, in week two, which was the concept of electricity, to kind of go a little more in-depth on what I was telling you when it came to a minor to a moderate disruption. And so a minor, again, is a week or less and a moderate is a week to a month. I made a recommendation that you could get one of these Honda uh, small generators and you could power, you know, one or two things uh, kind of intermittently if you wanted to, like, say, power a chest freezer and then power a, a small, you know, dorm size refrigerator. You could run them both at the same time or you could kind of alternate back and forth to try and keep both of them cool. Um, what I wanted to talk about there was that that small generator, that little Honda or others like it, Rainier, they usually have a one-gallon fuel tank, fuel cell. So depending on how much uh, the generator is having to work, you're going to have to fill that probably at least twice a day, maybe three times a day. But just say for the sake of argument, you have to fill that tank twice in a 24-hour period. So if you have to fill it twice, that's two gallons a day. And if you're trying to 
have enough fuel on hand to power the generator to outlast at least a minor, which is a week, and and go part of the way into a moderate. So if you have a windstorm, a blizzard, um, thunderstorm, hurricane, tornado, whatever, typically you're not going to be without power for a full month. You're going to be without power for maybe up to two weeks. Maybe. Usually you get it back within a week to ten days, if there, even if there's a lot of destruction. So, but just for the sake of argument, saying you're, tr- you're trying to, to have enough fuel on hand for two weeks, and you have a small generator. Well, that's two gallons a day times 14 days. That's 28 gallons of fuel, which, depending on the price of fuel in your area, I used an average of, say, 250 a gallon. That's $70 worth of fuel that you have to have on hand. So, call it 30 gallons. Just round up, okay? So that would mean you would need six five-gallon fuel containers stocked and stabilized and ready to go. And what I like to do is I like to rotate that stock of five-gallon containers. So I'll have all five of them full, but what I'll do is when, when my car needs gas, I will fill the car up using the fuel in the five gallon containers. Then I will put the fuel containers, the empty fuel containers in my car and then I will drive to the gas station and I will refill the fuel containers. That way I'm rotating my stock and I'm keeping the fuel fresh. Because if the fuel is full but the fuel is only a month old or a few weeks old when one of these natural events happens, like a tornado or a hurricane or winter weather, windstorm, whatever it is, um, you know, everything short of a hurricane is pretty much unexpected to some degree because uh, tornadoes you don't really see coming. You don't get a whole lot of warning with those. Same with thunderstorms. I mean, they'll tell you, but it's usually in a few hours preceding the event. Uh, windstorms, they never ever get right. They they just tell you, ah, you know, it's going to be kind of windy. We got leftover um, wind from the hurricane that came through the Gulf. Uh, the mountains or the Mississippi Valley or the Ohio Valley or whatever it is, uh, it's pretty much drained it of all of its moisture. But, you know, we could expect, I think when the last one we had, they said 30 mile an hour winds. We got 60 mile an hour. We got double the winds. So uh, that's a problem. But if you, if you know it's coming, then you can run to the store and you can get them filled up. But I, I wouldn't want to rely on that. I, w- I would want those things off of my plate before an incident occurs and you find yourself in a minor disruption or a moderate disruption. So that is the small one, okay? Now, if you have... A larger generator, you got a bigger problem because those generators take about seven and a half gallons of fuel. And if you're having to fill that twice a day, that's 15 gallons of fuel a day. Even if you stuck to just having, trying to have two weeks of, of worth of fuel on hand to refill a large generator two times a day for two weeks, you will need 210 gallons of fuel. 
at roughly two fifty a gallon, you would have to spend five hundred and twenty five dollars just to have fuel on hand. That does not sound appealing at all. You know, I could I could handle you know five five gallon cans, six five gallon cans, so for thirty gallons. But I don't I don't have any place and a lot of people don't. Where are you gonna store two hundred and ten gallons worth of fuel? So you need to have a backup plan to your backup plan. Uh, you could use the fuel from your car, so go get those filled up before the event occurs or keep them at least three quarters full all the time and you could siphon the gas out of that. Uh, depending on the size of the vehicle, you'll get anywhere between uh, 12 and 22, 25 gallons. If it's a, you know, if it's a big SUV or a truck, um, you'll get more gas, obviously. Some trucks come with dual tanks. Um, but the smaller cars, the, the four-door sedans, the, the tiny little Jeeps, not the Jeep Wranglers, but like the Jeep Latitudes or whatever, they got a very tiny tank. Um, you can siphon the fuel out of those. But I wanted to talk about those, and I wanted to bring your attention to that because fuel is going to be a very limiting factor for your ability to outlast a minor disruption uh, or or the first half of a, of a moderate disruption depending on the situation on the ground. So you need to make sure that you have some means to, to address that, um, whether that's going with maybe you've got 10 five-gallon cans of, of fuel. I mean, you've you got 50 gallons, so... That's not going to get you 210 with a large generator. So you're going to have to figure out something else. And the last thing was the whole house generator. So what I mentioned in week two was that those things are extremely loud. There's no way to hide that noise signature. So everybody in the neighborhood is going to know you're running a generator. They won't know until they come into your backyard, whether it's a whole house or a, or a portable generator. But... The whole house generator will allow you to get away from having to store copious amounts of fuel, but you're going to get a huge natural gas bill uh, if you're on a city feed. Uh, if you're in the country and you have a tank, you will use the bulk of that tank to make it through a moderate, no, I'm sorry, to make it through a minor plus a week. So you're into a moderate um, disruption duration wise two weeks but uh, most of those tanks depending on their size you might exhaust whatever's in that tank whether that's diesel or um, propane or whatever so you need to you need to be looking at your systems to see what you actually need to power so if you have a whole house generator you can scale that generator to only deal with the essential circuits. So you might need to rethink how your house has been wired so that you can isolate specific circuits to handle your kitchen, um, to handle any circuit that a refrigerator or a chest freezer or a sump pump or uh, a well pump, anything 
that you need to keep food from spoiling, your basement from flooding, and to provide water. Because you can, you know, it's a creature comfort to go 10 days without a shower, okay? You can do it. I don't know if you want to burn the resources that are in your propane or your diesel tank uh, if you're in the country trying to keep uh, an electric hot water heater running for 10 days, a week, two weeks, however long the duration is. So you need to be thinking about that and, and then have a transfer switch installed so that once you throw that switch, when the generator kicks on, or sometimes the generator will throw the transfer switch automatically, uh, only the key circuits will be powered, and that will help you conserve fuel. Uh, because there's no sense in you getting uh, a whole house generator that is going to power your whole home in the dead of winter or in the heat of summer. You know, yeah, you might have some uncomfortable night's sleep if you're not trying to power your AC unit. Um, but, you know, a space heater is going to be a far less drain on your generator than trying to run your HVAC unit during the winter. So you might have to, these are some of the games that you have to play, the mental ping pong to say, well, if I do this, then I can do that. Or if I go without this, then that, then that frees me up to do these other two or three or four things. In uh, regard to, to solar, it's just, it is a, it is a wonderful thing. I, I wish it worked all the time, but it doesn't. Uh, if it's cloudy, you're going to get less uh, energy collected. If, like Texas found out, with their windmills and their solar farms... You get an ice storm and the ice covers up all of those solar panels. Guess what? They don't work. You know, if you've got, if you live off in the country and you've got uh, a wind pump as a backup on your well and it gets coated in ice, I don't think it's one of those giant turbines that are out there in these wind farms, but, you know, it can still get gummed up with ice. You know, I. Having renewable energy sources is great if you can afford them and assuming or provided you have a backup to them because you have to know what the failure rate is. You have to know what the potential is for these alternative energy systems so that you know that, hey, you know what, it's winter and I don't know if my solar is going to get me what I need to get. So maybe you need to invest in that that Tesla Powerwall or that Enphase uh, power system that will help you store energy. You can pull it from the grid. It'll help it'll charge it up so that that'll work for two or three days, depending on how many circuits you're trying to run, while you go and address your your backup wind pump and your... Uh, your solar panels if they're caked in ice and things of that nature. So uh, I just wanted to revisit that topic to kind of draw your attention to the amount of fuel that you're going to need on hand if you have a small generator, 
and a large generator and make you aware that you know if if it if you're going into a moderate disruption with a large uh, generator, a large portable generator, you're going to have a problem because if you try and go a full month with a large generator, seven and a half gallon tank, two refills a day, that's 450 gallons for a month. I, you better have an, uh, uh, a, an extra storage tank because that's the only way you're storing that much fuel. And if it lasts just two weeks, you're still looking at 210 gallons. So that's a problem. And that's a problem for a lot of people that don't have the land, say, you know, they don't have a, a an external pole barn or a shop or anything like that to store extra fuel in or to sink a, an underground tank or even an above-ground tank. So it, it becomes a problem. So I wanted to revisit that um, also. Uh, next week should be interesting because I am going to North Carolina uh, to go visit a friend of mine, and we're going to do some saltwater fishing, some freshwater fishing. We're going to go quail hunting. Uh, I'm going to be out on the coast, so it'll be it'll be a good time. So I'm going to go fly down there. It makes it difficult because the original plan was that um, we were going to go camping and spend four or five days out in the woods and I, I was actually really excited about it because I wanted to try out some different primitive um, techniques that I had been reading about and, and I'd been practicing and I wanted to give it a shot and um, then all of a sudden somebody backed out of this um, well multiple guys backed out of a quail hunting trip that his dad had put together and so both of us wound up getting slots to go on this quail hunt for uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So, um, so now instead of camping, I'm going to go on this quail hunt. And then I started looking at, uh, you know, should I take my car? Should I take a rental car? Because uh, I was thinking I was taking all this gear to go down and do this. But um, to get a rental car, it was going to be like 300 bucks, 325 bucks. To take my own car... Uh, the cost of fuel was going to be uh, 150, 200 bucks to get there and back because it's not a short trip. It's about 20, 22 hours round trip in a car with all of my crap. So that was going to weigh the car down. That was going to wreck my fuel mileage, uh, miles per gallon. And so then I started looking at flights and I can save myself 22 hours in a car time-wise and spend an extra hundred bucks and just fly down so i'm gonna fly down i've got one bag that's full of gear <laughs> and i do not feel like messing with tsa um and bringing my 20 gauge with me or any of my my fishing poles because i'm they're gonna break them i know it um so my buddy's got everything that i need down there for fishing and and hunting uh, so i don't have to mess with tsa but I got one bag that I'm telling you, the people that are going to x-ray that, they're going to be like, what the hell is this? It's a, you know, two fishing vests. It's uh, uh, my neoprene boots. It's a pair of waders. It's <laughs> it's all this stuff. And, uh, you know, we're going to go out on a boat at 6 o'clock in the morning uh, in March. And it's going to be cold. And he's like, hey, do you have a winter coat? I'm like, dude, do you remember where I live? And he's like, oh, yeah. 
And I said, which coat should I bring? He said, probably something that you can zip out layers and stuff. And I was like, yeah, I got, I got a couple of those. So, so it's going to be fun. So I'll talk to you guys about that tomorrow or uh, not tomorrow, next week. So, all right, you guys have a good night. Talk to you soon. Happy Hunger Games. And may the odds be ever in your favor. Thank you.